0: All right, we begin Mark 9. So it seems like uh, we spent a long time in Mark 8. Part of that was because we talked about uh, discipleship and uh, commitments uh, about discipleship. So I don't know why I'm flipping through when I've got my little bookmark here. I don't know. I'm a silly person. Hear the word of our God. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents for you, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Thank you for this enduring and reliable word. As we examine it this morning, let us not forget that by it you shall examine us as well. Grant the Spirit to illuminate the word that we might understand it, believe it, and live in accordance with your will and purposes that are found here. We ask this in the name of the living word, who took on flesh, Jesus. Amen. If you were to think of people in the ancient world, their experience with glory was rather limited. It would be related perhaps solely to natural glory, sunrises, sunsets, things such as that. The idea of of glory with respect to a human being was something that most of them had probably never seen because most of them lived far away from capital cities. Uh, They wouldn't see coronations of Caesars and kings. Uh, They didn't have that privilege of, of being part of the parade that would then subsequently go out into the city so that people could see the king that was to lead them. That all changed. 1953, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. This was the first time that cameras were going to be brought into the Westminster Assembly so that the common people, not simply the elite and the nobles of that society, would be able to witness the coronation of their new queen. And she was dressed in her best, uh, with her robe, with her crowns, with the jewels. Glory placed upon her. This was the first time. For 27 million people in Britain alone were able to get a glimpse of this sort of glory. Let's think for a moment of the promise of glory. Uh, Jesus, in the end of chapter 8, had talked about the promise of his disciples sharing in his glory after his suffering after their suffering. This message of a suffering Savior as well as suffering disciples had to be hard to swallow, and the promise of glory had to be really difficult to grasp, precisely because they themselves had never seen glory, true glory. They're following Jesus. They're following an itinerant rabbi. They're following a man who used to be a carpenter. They're following a man who has no retinue besides themselves. It's not nobles. It's not rich people. There's no great carriages in which he rides upon the shoulders of others who carry it. He's living off the kindness of others. What glory, Jesus! What glory. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to uh, give you a heads up in a sense. As I read this passage, there are lots of questions I have that Mark chooses not to answer. We can get lost in some of those questions. But we need to remember what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but that which has been revealed is for us and for our children. And so let's rejoice in what God does reveal in this text, and let's not stress about the things he chooses not to reveal in this text. So in other words, trust him. So as we come to this, this text, this first question that I want to pose to help us understand what's going on here. How is it that Jesus confirms this future glory to them? Remember, that's the problem. Why should they believe him? Why should they believe anybody? There's a long history of imposters, a long history of con men that have, have pulled people's legs about things like glory. Since the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia Lots of women have claimed to be various grand duchesses of Russia. It's a really long list. I was surprised at how long this list was. And there are factors such as mental health, as well as people who are just looking for money. But nonetheless, people thirsting for glory, pretending to have it, but not. Some of you may have heard about Princess Kataboo who was actually an English woman, but she pretended to be a princess from a fictional island. And she had apparently fooled many people with her counterfeit glory. Many of you have seen or heard of the story of Frank Abagnale. Catch Me If You Can is the name of the book and the subsequent movie about his story how he went around the world passing bad checks, so he was, in a sense, a counterfeiter. And But not only that, he impersonated any number of professions successfully. (laughs) He was not a pilot, and yet he went on as a pilot of a commercial jetliner. Even though he hadn't gone to medical school, he he was working in a hospital as a doctor. He worked as a lawyer until he knew the federal, federal police were on his case and he would leave town. But he ran for years and impersonated many people in the process. When I was doing research for my book, which will probably never be published, um, (laughs) I came across a series of people in 2004 that had never wanted to accept responsibilities for their actions, and one of them was a divorcee by the name of Lisa Ward. Somehow, Lisa Ward claimed to be a Saudi princess named Antoinette Millard. I guess she would say it was French. And in the process, she racked up an American Express bill of over $950,000. And in the chutzpah, to then sue American Express for not seeing that she was racked with anxiety, and this is why she racked up this huge bill. Counterfeiters, con men, stolen glory, How do we know that Jesus is not just another in a long line of religious hucksters? Well, Jesus takes his three favorite disciples, Peter. Not sure why he's the favorite. Peter's the one who always puts his foot in his mouth. But Jesus loves him. So he takes Peter and he takes James and John, James's brother, and he brings them, as it says, up a high mountain by themselves. He separates these three from the rest of the twelve and the entourage that sort of followed them around as well. Why does he go up on this high mountain that is not identified for us? It's probably Mount Hermon, but we don't know. It's one of those things Mark doesn't tell us. Mountains are, of course, where godly men in the Old Testament, godly men in the past, had met with God, had met or experienced theophanies or visions of God, manifestations of his glory in a, in a fashion that they could not be overwhelmed by that glory, but know that it exists. Moses, for instance, was on the top of the mountain six days in Exodus 28 before God speaks to him. This is likely an allusion to that. They're going up six days after Jesus has talked about his sufferings and the subsequent glories, as Peter would later say in his first letter. And something amazing happened when they're on this mountain. He was transfigured before them. A metamorphosis Took place. That's really, if you transliterate it from the Greek, that's what it is. Metamorphosis, a transformation takes place. This Jesus who looked so absolutely ordinary, who looked like an ordinary peasant of his day, was transformed in a moment. And the way that Mark explains this or describes this is that his clothes became radiant. It's not that he got new clothes. It's not that he got dressed up like Queen Elizabeth and had this great robe and everything else. His clothes changed. They became radiant. They became intensely white. So white that it was whiter than anyone could bleach it. Jesus glowed. It's not because Beverly Goldberg showed up and bedazzled his clothing. Glory broke through. Moses, uh, he had reflected God's glory. After he'd seen uh, the Lord on the mountain, his face shined. And so it, it began to fade, and he placed this veil over it so people would not be overwhelmed. But what we see here... Is not that Jesus simply reflects the glory of God, but what we see here is that Jesus is the glory of God. This is not a, a, a glory that he reflects because it shines on him like the, the moon reflects the light of the sun. Jesus is the sun that shines. And the clouds that sometimes hide the sun from our eyes are removed so that Peter and John and James are able to grasp the glory of Jesus. He radiates this glory of God. This is the intrinsic glory of Jesus. Jesus that is far greater than the manufactured glory of the Caesars. Far greater than the manufactured glory, apologies to my Canadian friends, of the Queen. We grow weary over false and fading glory, where we're tired of stories of, of of people who promise great things and don 't deliver this is after all the political season, but it 's not limited to that i mean we 're still waiting on elon musk 's promises aren 't we there 's a few of those that are left hanging okay and so we we grow weary of these promises of glory that that we hear about. But what we should recognize here is that Jesus refreshes us with this glimpse of his eternal glory. Peter, in that passage that Rick read for us this morning, his second letter, the first chapter, one of the things that Peter talks about with respect to the transfiguration. One of the first, he mentions, we didn't invent this. We speak of this majesty, and that's one of the words he uses for it, that idea of glory, the, the, the weightiness, the brilliance of it all. But he speaks of it as a confirmation of the promises of the suffering and subsequent glory of Jesus. This, in a sense, is a foretaste Of that glory, that guarantees that glory that is to come, but not just the glory, but all of those prophecies that have been given. And so Jesus reveals his glory in order to confirm his promise. Okay, that's good. I have another question Is this another God? Is this a competitor to the God of Israel? Uh, In other words, are the Pharisees right? See, there is a problem. That the transfiguration sort of introduces a potential problem. Is this a competitor to the Lord of Israel? Is he a false prophet that is seeking to lead people to worship a different God? This is an an incredibly important question that has to be answered. It's, it's of no small thing here. And so it's no small thing that Mark continues. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses. Now, here's another one of those things that I want to know. How does Mark know? How did Peter know who these people were? It's not like they were wearing name tags. Okay. But nonetheless, the two, two of the most prominent prophets of the Old Testament show up, two prophets who each had been on a different mountain and had received a theophany. They had witnessed God. They had heard God. Not only that, but these two men, Moses and Elijah, had also been very vigilant about the problem of apostasy, about the worship of false gods. Moses had seen this when he came down from the mountain the first time as they, they're dancing around the golden calf. Moses had seen this as the people of Israel had gone after Baal of Peor, Elijah had seen this as the northern kingdom had chased the gods of Rahab. The gods of that wicked woman, Jezebel. And so, if anyone is going to confront the possibility of apostasy the possibility that this is a counterfeit God, it's going to be Moses and Elijah, and instead of confronting Jesus, they're just talking with Jesus. The impression that Mark gives is that this is a good conversation, not a hard conversation. They're enjoying fellowship together. They're not combating with one another. When we go to Luke's Gospel... We find that when he reports this incident, he says that they were discussing his upcoming departure, or exodus, in Jerusalem. In other words, the topic of their conversation was the impending suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they're talking about. This is like a council meeting. This is sort of like Star Wars, episode six, (laughs) when suddenly they're all rejoicing and partying, and there you have Obi-Wan and Yoda and even Anakin in restored glory hanging out with the people as they celebrate the end of the empire. It's sort of like that. These most prominent people showing up. The response of the disciples? They're terrified. And their their response is, is not Yay, look at this. This is so awesome. This is I've never seen anything like this. Well, yeah, they've never seen anything like this, but they're they're shaking in their boots, they're not sure what to do, and Peter is not sure what to say, and he, you know, kind of just blurts out, Hey, should we build three tabernacles or booths? You know Let's not pick on Peter too hard here. I'm reminded of kind of how hard it is sometimes to be in the presence of what we consider glory and not get our tongues tied. This week saw the uh, the death of one of the uh, great guitarists of this world, Heidi Van Halen, and in the process of reading all different articles about him and hearing these different stories of him, and um, you know, because I listened to them a lot when I was a teenager, uh, his greatest influence the the guitarist that that he really latched onto to when he was a kid, the one that got him to play guitar, the one that he copied lick after lick from listening to the radio or the the turntable, was Eric Clapton, which is funny because he sounds nothing like Eric Clapton, and so amazingly the Ted Templeton, who discovered Van Halen, signed them to the contract, and was their producer for their first six albums, he did some work with Eric Clapton. And so Ted rev- tells about how Eddie would call him. Is he there? Can you say hi? And Ted is basically saying, Eddie, come on down. Eddie apparently was too shy and too afraid to come into the presence of his hero, even though Eddie himself had become as legendary a guitarist as Clapton. Imagine Peter, how much more tongue-tied, afraid, and everything else he must be because he is not in Jesus' class in any way, shape, or form. And so these three men are trembling. And it's while they're trembling that a cloud overshadows them. It's not enough that Moses and Elijah show up. This cloud comes, and a voice came out of the cloud. We have here not simply Jesus' glory, but now we also have the Father's glory. The Father who comes. It's a glory cloud, and so that means two things. On the one part there is glory. Uh, I I remember some of those uh, nights when I first moved to Florida to go to seminary, and I had nothing to do because most of my possessions were in a moving van, and uh, I I didn't want to study my Greek, and so I would sit outside and I'd watch that lightning cross the sky, the heat lightning. And especially when it goes behind a cloud and you just see the cloud light up. That's the image, a cloud lighting up because there's glory behind it. There's glory in it. And so the glory is there, and yet the glory is also obscured because of the cloud, precisely so the glory does not consume the sinners who are watching this. There's mercy in this theophany. There's mercy. And so we see the presence of God the glory of God and the mercy of God, lest these men be destroyed. And the voice speaks similar to what was spoken at the baptism of Jesus, but these three guys weren't necessarily there. It speaks again, this is my beloved Son. The Father speaks so that they understand. The Father speaks to also confirm or verify the identity of Jesus. That he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, is not simply something that Peter made up, of course. The Father had revealed it to him, as Jesus said in other gospel accounts. But here we see again, the Father is affirming who Jesus is an additional witness or testimony to the identity of who this Jesus is. He is the Son of God. It's not Caesar or any other pretender. It's Jesus. But he's not just my son. He's the beloved Son. The never-ending, always-and-forever love of God rests upon this Son of His the steadfast love rests upon Jesus. And so as Jesus prepares to go into this time of suffering and rejection at the hands of the religious leaders and death at the hands of Pilate and the Romans, his suffering should in no way be interpreted as if the father has despised him, as if the father has rejected him in and of himself, that somehow the father scorns the son but rather, the Father loves the Son eternally and loves the Son as He's obedient and bearing the sin of His people. This is a declaration that the Son is the Messiah. The Messiah that we see in Psalm 2, the, the the promised son of David that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this suffering servant that is a delight to the Lord upon whom the Spirit has been poured out in Isaiah 42. It's Jesus. All these Old Testament promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And so yes, the son will suffer. But he suffers not for his own sin, because he knew no sin. But he will suffer in his role as Messiah for the sins of his people to rescue them from the wrath of God. We grow weary, I think, of uh, competing gods and religions and claims in fact, I just saw that there's a Siberian Messiah. There's a guy in Siberia who claims to be the Messiah. No, it ain't him. But the, the multitude of faiths can weary us. But Jesus refreshes us because he reveals to us, in fact, he is the one true God that there is no one like him, that there's no one who's been transfigured on a mountain. There's no one to whom the Father has spoken repeatedly, this is my beloved Son. There's no one upon whom the Spirit came so that he could bear the sins of his people. No one but Jesus And so the Father affirms Jesus is the Son for our salvation. And so as we continue to think about this text, what should we take from this text? Well, the Father gets right to the point. After he declares who Jesus is, that he's his beloved Son, he says, listen to him. This ought to remind us of Deuteronomy 18. It surely reminded Peter, James, and John of Deuteronomy 18 because they've been waiting for the, pro- the prophet like Moses to show up, the prophet they were supposed to listen to. And God says, this is the one to listen to him. God had spoken in many and various ways, as it says in Hebrews 1, but then in these last days he speaks to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The Son who is the radiance of the Father's glory. We're supposed to listen. Pay attention. Embrace the truthfulness of statements that he makes. But I want us to pause for a second and and recognize Jesus is the God who speaks. God is not silent. God is not quiet. God has spoken. And he continues to speak through his word by the Spirit when we read it. He speaks to us. Jesus is the God who speaks. And so we are to listen. As he tells us, first of all, within the context of this passage, they were to listen as he spoke about the fact that he was going to suffer to save sinners. That's the first thing we need to listen to. We need to listen to that in the sense of listen to him as he tells us about our pervasive sinfulness. We were uh, do it, having our membership class yesterday, and I showed an old clip from the Orlando Sentinel, circa 97, I think it was, and it talked about how 9 in 10 Americans think they're going to heaven. Bill Clinton, maybe. The people are less sure about Newt Gingrich. Okay. But they were pretty certain about themselves, which means they have a very understanding of their own sinfulness and that's human nature we because we're blinded by sin we we so easily see the sins of other people and it's so difficult for us to see our own sins and so we say crazy things well like I haven't murdered anybody to which Jesus of course says if you hate your brother in your heart you're guilty well, I haven't committed adultery, to which Jesus again says, if you've lusted after in your heart, you have. And it goes on down the line. The commandments not only, not only address our actions, but also address our desires and reveal our Corruption. And so we need to listen to Jesus when he says these things. He's right, you know, we need to say. This is who I am, but I'm thankful that he came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. We need to listen to him as he speaks of his never-ending, always-and-forever love for his people. But I'll, I'll remind you that it's not like some moms or dads. I do, a, I do a better job imitating a bad mom voice than I do a better dad voice. So, sorry, moms. I bore you for nine months in my body, and this is the thanks I get. Think about all that I do for you, all the laundry that I've done. I make meals for you every day. I clean up your stuff, your toys, your clothes. You never put... Them. No, you don't like that, a voice, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's not how Jesus sounds when he speaks about his love. What he says is something like this. Though I was rich, I became poor so that I might enrich you because I love you. Though I was equal with God, I didn't cling to it, but I would emptied myself. I became like a slave for you. And not only did I become like a slave to you, but I was obedient even to death because I loved you and I wanted you with me. When Jesus speaks of his love to us, we're not to be uh, assuming that it's time to pack our bags, we're going on a guilt trip, uh, but to, to hear the sincerity of his love for his children, for his people, for his bride. Not a begrudging love, not a frustrated love, but a love that delights amazingly in the object of that love. We're to listen to him as he speaks about our need for faith, And repentance, our need to trust, as well as to turn around, to turn away from our sin and turn back to God. That's what repentance is. We need to listen to Him as He tells us about the glory that is to come, the glory that He promises, and I still can't wrap my brain around this, that He promises to share with us when He returns. How can he share his intrinsic glory with me? And yet he promises to. He's going to be the sun. We're going to be the moons. And we're going to reflect that glory. But it's as if he takes that robe from around his shoulders and shares it with us because we reign and rule with him forever. (laughs) Queen Elizabeth doesn't do that. Can't do that. Peter got the point. Sometimes it took Peter a while. But again, as we turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, we see that he says, pay attention or listen as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is an allusion that Peter is making to Psalm 119 not the Amy Grant Michael Card song. It's Psalm 119. So not only is the prophetic word more confirmed Jesus is a lamp These are dark days, brothers and sisters. We live in a dark place. Tucson, one of the least churched cities in the country. In a country that's becoming one of the least churched countries in the world. While we sit. And in a dark place, in a dark time, we need a lamp to see the way. And Jesus is the lamp. In our troubled times, we're wise if we begin to spend more time listening to Jesus than we do our radios or our computers with the internet or even the relatives who drive you crazy. (laughs) These are times to spend more time hearing Jesus, being in his word, so that we see life increasingly from his perspective and not our perspective. Or the perspective of those who want to instill you with fear. See, that's the thing. Jesus doesn't want to make you afraid, Jesus makes, wants to make you trusting in him. That's the difference. Listen to him so you will trust in him so that your heart is not troubled. Why is your heart so often troubled? Because you're not listening to him and receiving the comfort that he offers through the truth. You're listening too much to the pundits of our day who are selling fear. Now, I'll admit, we're, we live in part of the darkness of our times is the fact that we don't know who to believe anymore. Which expert on COVID? Which one? Which, which missive of the CDC because they're different? <laughs> which politician? Which personality on the radio? Uh, uh, which, you know, celebrity pastor? It wearies the soul when we don't know who we should listen to. And Jesus reminds us, He refreshes us by saying, listen to me. Tune out the rest. Listen to me. Because as the disciples learned, to whom whom else shall we go? For you alone have the words of life. And that's where we need to go. That's where we need to be. Jesus alone has the words of life. That's the person I need to listen to. And so Jesus speaks the word of the Father that we need to hear. And if we kind of take these three strands and kind of wrap them together, so to speak... I think the big idea that Mark is trying to communicate is that Jesus is the Word of God who is a lamp to our feet. That's what we need to believe about this passage. And so the promise of glory is hard to believe. We're used to glory that earthly rulers have that they kind of put on when they fulfill their office. So it's a counterfeit glory of sorts. But Jesus gave these three disciples a glimpse of his glory, the glory that belonged to him in eternity, but while he was doing his earthly ministry, he had been hiding. Revealing this glory confirmed that the promises of the prophets would be fulfilled in Jesus. The Father's words, therefore, also confirm that Jesus is the one to whom we should listen. And so, while we might not be sure which news station, which experts or candidates to believe, we can be certain that we can believe Jesus when he speaks. So let's pray. Father, um, the gospel declares, um, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So, Father, even though we just read about this glory, we're not the ones who saw this glory. Um, we're trusting the first hand account of, of John and Peter. That they saw the glory. That the glory is real and the glory belongs to Jesus. Help us to listen. Help us to believe that He is the God who speaks. Help us to believe that He is the lamp that lights our way help us to believe that he is the savior who suffers for sinners to to rescue them from the wrath of God help us to listen when he identifies our sin so that we can turn from it help us to listen Open our ears so we can listen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.